Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. So did you see your boy John Glenn is no longer the oldest person in space? No. Oh. No, I did not see that. William Shatner just went up into outer space with Jeff Bezos. Oh, okay. Or with with Bezos' crew or whatever. Yeah, I saw that William Shatner went up. I guess I didn't realize that he is older than John Glenn was when he went up. Wasn't Glenn like 78? Or how old was Glenn? I don't remember how old he was. Okay. I'm not sure. How old is William Shatner? 90. William Shatner's 90 years old? Yeah, that's the reaction everybody has. And I've kind of been aware of it for a while. Like, obviously, each year he adds one. But, like, he's way older than everybody thinks because he's still totally with it and a little maybe heftier than you usually see a 90-year-old. Yeah, no, William Shatner is 90 years old and uh, went up in one of Bezos' rockets. And it was kind of neat seeing his reaction after. Like, he had a life-changing experience. It was, like, tearing up talking about it. And I'm like... Okay, yeah. that's pretty darn cool. <laughs> yeah, and part in the back of your brain, you're, you're always you like can't help but thinking like, "This has been space before, right?" Like, no, that's all made up. <laughs> yeah. We we have the footage. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like a Galaxy Quest situation. <laughs> yes, yes, like, the historical records. <laughs> yes, so yes, Captain Kirk has finally actually been to outer space, and uh, that that was pretty cool just to see his see his reaction. It was very. Very kind of yeah, a, that's a awesome. Gen- Good for him. Genuine, genuine moment. I mean, as as much as I, you know, just take issue with the principle of the whole like Jeff Bezos space race stuff. I I do think it's a little bit ridiculous because it's like like we did this stuff sixty years ago. Like what? Who like who is impressed by this? It's a rocket that goes up into space. Like we did this in the nineteen sixties with computers that didn't even have the processing power of an, of an iPhone. Who's impressed by Jeff Bezos doing it in twenty twenty one? I'm not. I guess no. To me, I guess it's like no. Again, and Bezos needing to be taxed a million times more. That's a whole separate issue, I guess, as far as I'm concerned. But I see it more as NASA just kind of kept doing it for you know it's the government, it's for science versus with yeah. Bezos and Musk and all those guys, I see it as the future or the beginnings of a future of tourism, space tourism. And that, you know, 15 years from now, does it cost a thousand bucks to go up to space for 90 minutes? And people are doing it all the time. Like, and that's maybe what they were seeing the beginnings of here now. And no, it's not a big yeah. deal scientifically, but commercially. And again, Shatner didn't have that experience is one of those things where, oh, 10% of the country has been up to space by 2050. And I don't know. So it's relevant from if, that point. If that is the case, that would be cool. But it's like the you know commercial space race right now is so heavily subsidized by the government anyway. It's like well, and that's fair. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know. I'm just I'm just not I'm just not impressed. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm glad Shatner got to go up anyway. <laughs> but yes, yes. That and I'm happy for that too. That is actually pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, uh, welcome to history and film. And <laughs> this is actually kind of a unique episode here because we are kind of taking a break as far as our listeners are concerned from our tournament we're kind of right in the middle of our most interesting person in history tournament and we're going to talk today about Ridley Scott's The Last Duel which is in theaters now we're recording this opening weekend and I'm hoping to get this episode edited and out while it is still the first week of 
release, which is something we have not been able to do. And this will be kind of thrown back into our overall world history timeline. So we went through the first four seasons of the podcast, went through world history in chronological order, one movie at a time. And we kind of decided, well, there's always going to be more movies that come out that are based on history that we're going to want to see, that we're going to want to talk about. And so on our website, we just kind of have a master timeline we'll continue to add to. I really like this. I, I think we should do this as, as often as we can. And I, I know it's as like easy for me to say because I'm not the one who has to edit this episode in three days or whatever. <laughs> but uh, it's a lot of fun doing an episode on a, on a movie that just came out and is, you know, as, especially for us, it's, it's like a, it's so different because we're talking about this today is going to be released in a few days versus the episode that we recorded for us you know, last week in our time is not going to be released for months and months. So yeah, this is, this is fun. Yeah. Just like the last episode released, we recorded months ago. So yes. And and honestly, yeah, we've talked about it before. It's basically just to not paint ourselves into a corner so we can keep a consistent release date. We have to kind of work ahead to make, make sure that can happen. Yeah. A few other notes. This is just, I just said some random notes before we get to the last duel, just kind of things I jotted down that I wanted to uh, discuss. One is, this was a facepalm moment for me, so I want to see how you do with it. <laughs> so, okay. obviously, we know that, like, a kingdom is controlled by a king, right? And, like, dukes yeah. dukes control duchies, and right. you have baronies, a little lesser note. So, <laughs> what would you call the area controlled by a count? Is it a countum? Uh, okay, good. You're, you're with me. It's, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh that that's where we get the word county oh my god <laughs> right <laughs> well okay so i just i was watching some youtube video just kind of breaking it all down and i think it was or earldom was another one they were talking about all the different ranks of nobility in england or whatever and they were just they just kind of like dropped that like casually like and of course count where we get the word county i'm like wait what <laughs> oh my gosh right right that's wild no so we just so we yeah we get the word there but obviously we don't have counts in the united states but yeah that's where the word comes from maybe that's just because like when i think of duchies and kingdoms and earldoms like that's i always think of those words in the context of feudalism like, and stuff european yeah. feudal society versus a county I've just that's something that's always been in my mind. Right. As like, well, you have the country, and that's divided into states, which are divided into counties. Unless you're in Louisiana, and I just, I never. Even, oh, that's true. Yeah, unless <laughs> you're in Louisiana. But yeah, you know, I just never, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Although I have, I, I did know that. Uh, I guess the word for sheriff comes from the word for or the uh, uh like a shire. So like you know. In, oh yes, yes, okay. In the UK, they have like you know uh, Hertfordshire or uh, Worcestershire, <laughs> and that that word Shire is the same. It's the same etymology. Word Sheriff comes from Shire. Yeah. Okay. Because he would have been the one administering or taking care of that Shire. Yeah, he was the Shire. If right. yeah, yeah, huh? Interesting. No, I I do kind of always get. I'm always interested in those word origins. My other random one. I did text you this, but I just like I felt I wanted to share it on air. Here is. I have my new theory, and I have not ran this by any geneticists, but I'd be curious to do, like, see, like, I have a 23andMe look into this. So, obviously, you grow up hearing just jokes about how inbred royal families are. We've talked before about Cleopatra's, mm-hmm. you know, her age 
great-grandparents might potentially be two people, just depending on right. which sources are correct. And, you know, the the Habsburgs with all their malformations and stuff due to lots of inbreeding. Yes, very, very famous for their uh, yes. for the deformities. So that aside, as I was doing some research for another project and just looking up family trees of royals and stuff, and the thought that occurred to me was, outside of some of those extreme examples... I'm going to put forth the theory that royal families are actually more genetically diverse, or at least were in medieval times, given that, again, the example I was I was telling Logan about was uh, Queen Margaret I of Denmark, who had, you know, ancestry from Italy and Spain and Russia, because when you're marrying off a royal princess, you're sending her off to another part of the world, which means you're introducing a completely different genetic background and so if i was going to look in the 1400s or 1300s and a danish farmer who's got nothing but centuries of other danish farmers in his blood compared to a princess a royal who has ancestors from all over europe i guess to me that seems more genetically diverse and now i get that those families then keep marrying into each other but they're also then introducing that more random genetic diversity and, and, and maybe I'm wrong that it's that it's enough circular. It's just a big circle that goes around the world. Yeah. But I'd, I'd be very, very curious to look into the like the 23andMe on that kind of stuff to see. Yeah, I don't know. Food, food for thought. Food for thought. Yeah. Well, even like you know, we talked about like uh, you know, Empress Matilda. Like, who did she marry? The emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So she's from England, but she's marrying a, a German guy. Right. From right. a completely different part of Europe. Or even like uh like in Edward the Third or Edward the Second Isabella of France type situation, right, right, where you know, and actually, those- I say not the best example because she's a distant cousin, and yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, it's probably more distant of a cousin than the local farmer was marrying. Yeah, it's it's still it's more separated than like a Habsburg marrying like their first cousin or a Cleopatra, which Cleopatra marrying her brother probably, you know, like we said, it was probably more of a political thing and they didn't never had any children or anything, but like that stuff did happen. But her grandparents being siblings was, <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 more real. Okay. And then the last thing I did want to give a shout out to the twin picks podcast. We appeared recently on yes. their show, so we can kind of give that shout out a little more timely here. The uh, episode with us on it was just the came out about, five days ago beginning of october here and then the they're going to talk about some movies we recommended to them tomorrow as of recording probably a couple days ago by the time we get this out so yeah uh, shout out to twin picks thanks for having us on and go to their podcast to hear us uh hear us on there and also uh keep a lookout it's going to be a couple months like we said with our recording schedule but they came on uh our show as well to talk about the crown so i don't know I don't know when uh, specifically that episode is coming out. It's going to be a while, but they did come on our show. It's just yeah, I think it's March. Yeah, <laughs> they're uh, they record a lot closer to their release dates than we do. So we were yeah, you, you can go listen to us on their show right now. To be fair, most people record a lot closer to their release dates than than I do. Uh, the only podcast yeah. yeah. The only other podcast I can think that records that far ahead of time is one I listen to called Writing Excuses, and they'll record like over the course of like a week on like a say a writing cruise or something. For example, they'll record okay half a year or a year's worth of episodes in a week, and then take take, take, mm. take a bunch of time off. But that is pretty rare. Lucky for us, though, our podcast is about history, so it's not like there's you know 
a ton of new developments. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, although, what was you weren't you saying something about Paul Rusbegina recently that he did get imprisoned or he did get sentenced to prison? Uh, oh yeah, this was that was a few a couple weeks ago. Um, but yeah, he was actually convicted because well, we mentioned his arrest. He was kind of tricked into going back to Rwanda where he was arrested, and then he was put on trial, but the trial was delayed for a long time because of COVID. But then, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, he was actually uh, convicted of whatever bullshit charges of terrorism. No, right. Crime, crimes against the country of Rwanda because he dare speak out against their oppressive re- right. regime. And now we're going to get captured by Rwandan officials. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. A sad end that hopefully is not the end uh, for the protagonist of Hotel Rwanda, which we've talked about before on here. But yes, so what's on the agenda today? Yeah, so we are going to talk about the new uh, Ridley Scott movie called The Last Duel. It is based on a book called The Last Duel by Eric Yeager, and it is about the last duel to the death uh, trial by combat in French history. I guess I should say at time of recording. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now that you, normally that's funny because we record so far ahead of time. It's like if there's one in the next few days, that would be remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to do a postscript. But yeah, it, it was a, a trial that uh, took place in the 1380s. 13, 1386, 1386. It was thirteen eighty. a trial that took place in 1386 between... Sir Jacques Legree and Sir Jean de Carouge, because uh, Carouge's wife, Marguerite de Carouge, accused Jacques Legree of rape. And so to defend his his own name, which we see in the film, but also his wife's honor, uh, Carouge demands a trial by combat, which is ultimately granted. Yes, yeah, so it stars Matt Damon as Carouge, uh, Adam Driver as Jacques Legree. Yes. Jodie Comer, who I wasn't familiar with, but she actually was kind of the star of the film, I felt, uh, as Marguerite. And mm-hmm. Ben Affleck plays the local count who's kind of the overlord for both of these men in the duel. He's uh, Pierre Dallinson. Jodie Comer is, uh, she was really good in this. Um, the only other thing that I had seen her in is that uh, the new... Ryan Reynolds movie Free Guy. Uh, Free Guy. She's like the love interest and she's the well, kind of the co main character with Ryan Reynolds in that movie. Which I haven't seen that yet, but I've heard it's good. It's pretty good. She was great in this though. And then this is actually the first screenplay written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon since Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Um, although they also had a a third partner, Nicole Hofsener, however you say that. Basically, so what they do in the film, and I do really appreciate this, it's getting comparisons to Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon in that it kind of tells the whole story three different times from each main character's point of view. And so when they were writing it, they wanted to basically kind of split it up and wanted to make sure a woman was the writer of the female's point of view, of Marguerite's point of view. And so they kind of each kind of took took a third. Which I think really does come through yes yes you can tell for sure that there is definitely a difference in i mean obviously it's a difference in point of view but you can tell that it was specifically a woman writing that section of the of the screenplay yes so we are in the middle of the hundred years war here between england and france that overall conflict doesn't play hugely into it 
Uh, but I do want to kind of place this in context of our overall timeline. And it's, I guess I don't usually think about this that much, but the Hundred Years War actually encompasses a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the podcast. So like all of the, uh, you know, Edward II, Edward III, Isabella of France stuff, that's kind of like the start of it. And then everything all the way through like uh, Henry V and the Battle of Agincourt, and then all the way up until Joan of Arc. Right, right. That's all part of the Hundred Years War. Right. It's, there's a lot of like really interesting historical stuff that happens during that during that time period. I was even kind of thinking of it as almost like the Hundred Years War is almost like its own little MCU. Like as far as like it has all these yes. all these heroes over decades and they're all spaced apart and this person, you know, the Black Prince and, you know, a Knight's Tale and then generations right. later you get Joan of Arc yeah. and just it's a really cool yeah. I say really cool time. I'd say that cuz obviously it's war and the the Black Death and all these guys other things in the middle of it's, it. But it's interesting to study, but I would not have wanted to be alive at that time. There you go. That's <laughs> a good way to say it. And it is peak medieval as far as I oh, mean it's peak medieval knights and jousting and everything. Yeah. I was gonna say when you think about like oh medieval battles with knights and horses and and big suits of armor and jousting like that's the Hundred Years War. Everything from Edward the Third's campaign in France, the Black Prince. Joan of Arc, like that, it's it's all the same overarching right. big conflict as the Hundred Years' War. Right, right, and it, it was, and again, it, obviously, it sounds like a long time to be at war, but it also it it ebbed and flowed over years, and at the end of the day, yeah, it all came down to land and power, and going back to the time of William the Conqueror, where you have this big Norman and French influence, and over the course of the next few generations, with Empress Matilda. In through Eleanor of Aquitaine and and all of those people, you ended up in a situation where the crown of England controlled more land in France than the king of France did. But the you talked about a little yeah. bit about this Isabella, how her husband and son had to pay mm-hmm. homage because of the land they own there. And right. ultimately, what happened to, to kind of settle these land disputes? Edward the Third, the son of Isabella of France, basically said, "You know what? I should just be king of France." Because you could argue he had a better claim than the king of France, although it was through his mother. Well, because the, so Isabella's father, he died, I think we actually talked about this in the tournament, we were talking about Isabella of France, but her father, who was the king of France, died, and then all of his sons died before they could have sons. Yes. And so basically, then it was like, well, now what? And Isabella said, well, my brother, who was the last king to die, was the king. And so even though there wasn't a, it wouldn't go to a female, so they wouldn't have a queen. But she said, I have a son. Right. So now Edward III, who's king of England, is now king of France because that's, you know, the line of succession. Well, there were people who didn't like that because he's the king of England and they didn't want the king of England to also be the king of France. So they said, well, you can't legally pass on a right that isn't yours that you don't also qualify for gotcha and so they wanted to have a different it was like one of the charles's so they they went back up to her uncle her father's brother's kid so her first cousin became Uh philip the sixth of france her first cousin so they just went up to her father's brother's kid so it kept it on the male side of things but it was not as direct as they would do it nowadays in say england Right. So yes, yeah, so that that was kind of the trigger point. But then yes, it lasted for decades. Um, this conflict specifically on our timeline, um, I'm putting between 
The Warrior, which was uh, set in, in China and Korea and dealing with Korea's fight against China. Uh, and then before The Passion of Joan of Arc. So, yeah, 1386 in the timeline there. Right. But like we talked about during the, well, Braveheart is like right before this, right before the Hundred Years' War. And then Knight's Tale is also right during the Hundred Years' War. Yes, yeah. Knight's Knight Tale's right in the mix of it. Braveheart's probably a little bit before it, because obviously Ever the Third wasn't even born yeah. yet. <laughs> Ever the Third is supposedly right. the kid fathered by William Wallace in the film Braveheart. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've talked before about how that doesn't play out. Uh, and then, yeah, and then Joan of Arc is kind of on the tail end of, of that before things kind of came to a close. Okay, so before we get into the historical aspects of the film itself, The Last Duel, we do want to give a little more specific background leading up to the story. So we're going to take turns talking about some of the characters that are in the film and what they were maybe doing leading up to it. Uh, yeah, so uh, the King of France at the time. King Charles VI is played by Alex Lothar, who uh, we've seen before in our timeline. He played the child version of Alan Turing in oh, that's right. uh, Imitation Game. I knew he looked familiar. Okay. So now he's grown up and he's playing Charles VI, who is, you know, famously Charles the Mad. So he had a bunch of mental health problems, um, including, which I think we... I vaguely remember having this discussion with you before. I don't know when we would have had it or even if we had it uh, on air or not. But uh, one of the things that he would do is he would have this thing. It was called the glass delusion, where he would think that he was made out of glass and that if he moved, he would like shatter. And so he would basically like be in this catatonic state for like extended periods of time because he was just so afraid that if he moved at all, he would like literally shatter into pieces. Oh, wow. Yeah, we get a tiny glimpse of his uh, potential madness when he gets excited during the duel itself. But even that's not yeah. even necessarily him being crazy yet. But yeah, because that comes a little later, right. I think, right? And, well, he was he was definitely he definitely had mental health problems his whole life. And we, you do kind of see it in the movie, but it's more of just he's just kind of like uh, he just seems a little off. Yeah, yeah. They don't really make him look like full on nuts which is kind of different than how you see him in other film portrayals so uh in oh what's the i forget the name of the movie the uh timothy chalamet robert Pattinson movie about henry v and the battle of agincourt just the king right oh is it called the king okay so in that movie charles the sixth is in that as well and he's like a little more a little more crazy. Well, he also and he would be older here too, because uh, Henry V was actually born in 1386, the year this film takes place, or at least the duel takes place. So yeah, it would be, oh, okay. it'd be like it'd be yeah. like a 20 years later. Yeah, right. Well, and Henry V was actually then after the Battle of Agincourt became the father-in-law of, or became the son-in-law of Charles VI because he married his daughter. Oh, and then that's how okay. that's how Henry VI became the king of England and France. Oh, so that's crazy. For a little, well, disputed yeah, for yeah. a little bit because then Joan of Arc comes on the scene at the end of the Hundred Years' War and defeats the English forces. And that results then in Charles VII, who is also known as Charles the Victorious, is like the, he's the next like French king of France. It's interesting that both Charles VI of France and then Henry VI of England are both crazy. And I was going to tie it to being the sixth, but it's like, oh, no, Charles VI was literally his grandpa. So it could be yeah. inherited. And I, I didn't think about that. That Henry VI yeah. got his madness kind of inherited from Charles VI. That's that's crazy. Right. 
<laughs> Bad choice of words. Henry V was going to assume the throne of France after Charles VI died, but then Henry V died before Charles VI did, right. so then it went to his son, Henry VI. Huh. Yeah, so Charles VI, he was uh, a king during the during the Hundred Years' War, and he uh, he was crazy, just like we see in the movie, a little bit. I didn't really go much more in-depth on him. Oh, I had one more thing. He uh, was super anti-Semitic. Oh. And he actually expelled a lot of Jews from France. There's actually like a whole section of his Wikipedia page that's just about him kicking a bunch of Jews out. Oh, wow. They look like they got the age about right. He would have been 18 or just turned 18 at the time of the duel. Uh, So casting a young Mm -hmm. guy was the right call there. They also show his wife pregnant in the film. And did you look up what happened to that child? Uh, no. So they, they kind of show her, like, during the trial and stuff, the queen is pregnant. And then I think by the time of the duel, she's not. So the kid was, the duel was in uh, December, late December. That child was born in September and died the day before the duel at just three months old. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I guess I didn't realize which one of those kids, because he had. One, two, yeah, three, several four, kids. five, yeah. six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. He had thirteen children that we know of. Right. Twelve of them legitimate, at least one illegitimate. But there's like died young, died young, died young. Like so many of his kids just died as children and never made it to adulthood. But yeah. If yeah, if you look if you look at the timeline of her pregnancies, yeah, it looks like maybe even their first pregnancy as a as a couple, because he'd only been king uh, for like a year yeah. when this case came about. Yeah, it's crazy that they show the queen pregnant and they don't mention that the kid died three months old just the day before the duel. And then I think I read that instead of like going immediately into mourning, Charles's response was, well, let's party even harder to kind of like, I don't know if like to not take our mind off it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. To take our mind off of it. So it's just crazy that they're watching the duel and he's got the queen watching there and she literally just lost her firstborn kid the day before the duel. Okay, and then Ben Affleck plays, again, we mentioned Count Pierre d'Alençon. And, uh, of course, his, his English Wikipedia is just Peter II of Alençon. So it's interesting, just kind of throughout this, this movie in general, in broad strokes, it got a lot right. Like, I was actually impressed to which they didn't make some stuff up. They were just kind of going with what was, with what was in the historical record, which I guess kind of makes sense if you're having all these land and title disputes. It's like, that's kind of boring to make up. It's like, oh no, it's, that's what they are really fighting about. Well, and they, when this movie says that it's based on the book, The Last Duel, like it's heavily based on the book. Okay. Like, yes, yes. Basically everything in the movie is from the book and that's, you know, based on, it's like written by an actual historian. So it is actually really historically accurate. Right. With the exception of her timeline, I think, was uh, not necessarily in the book. The book is about the men, and then they added her timeline. Oh, for right, the... right, right, right. So that's a good time to mention. I was looking through, if you look at the Wikipedia page sources, especially when we get to Carouge here, they cite basically his book for everything. So yes, he's a historian. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff where I found other articles kind of like contradicting things he had put, but then they put it on Wikipedia as fact, but then the source is his book. And so I'm just I'm a little curious about some of these some of these things and using him as the lone source for them seems to me a little tenuous unless I'm missing something because it, so and we'll get to kind of more of those uh, yeah things as we go here but yeah that and even a lot of the stuff like from not Wikipedia that I found about specifically when I was looking at Legree a lot of it would cite 
that book. I guess there's other than the book, The Last Duel. There, I guess there's not a ton of. There must not be a ton of like primary source historical records, right? So I'm sure, other yeah, than just something saying like, you know, this guy was a squire or a knight or whatever. So, so yeah, I I am sure that he did his research. He is a historian. He probably was looking at primary sources that may not have been written about mm-hmm. outside of his research. So I'm I'm not trying to belittle his research, but at the same time, there are certain right. other things where I think he might have made some assumptions. And uh, but we'll we'll, yeah. we'll get to those get to those later. So. The, the the Wikipedia page on Count Pierre is pretty limited, but they did kind of pull some. It's kind of funny, like almost like you can almost see Ben and Matt just looking at Wikipedia and writing some of this stuff out. Like they, <laughs> and again, I do the same thing. So it's, it's it's just kind of funny though. So you see, they even make a point of you know when they're all drinking at, at Count Pierre's house and his his wife is pregnant and he's he's going off to bed. And he's like, hey, she's busy at work making uh you know growing our eighth child in fourteen years of marriage, like. Yep, that's factually correct. They had eight kids in fourteen in fourteen years, and the last <laughs> one was she was pregnant with during this time. Like, that's all accurate. Yeah. And uh, he at one point does call because uh, they're like, "Oh, well, Cruz is going to go to the king," and Pierre's like, "The king, my cousin. Like, we're good." Yeah. So I was looking at that relationship, and yes, they are obviously related because a lot of the nobles were related. So the exact connection is Charles the grandfather. King John II of France uh, was first cousins with Pierre. So they do, have, they do have a common ancestor. Pierre would be the great-grandson of King Philip III of France. So a couple of interesting things. One, the territory we kind of see, and I don't think, I don't, may I miss this, I don't know if they explained it completely in, in the show. So the reason he becomes the lord over Carouge and Legree is his brother was actually their overlord. And when his brother died... Pierre inherited that land too, so he became the new lord mm-hmm. of the land that was already kind of controlled by Legree's family and Carouge's family. And right. uh, what I thought was interesting here too is I think they kind of made Pierre a little too, oh, definitely not effeminate, but just uh, soft. This guy was also a warrior who would have seen battles and and things in his time. Oh, right. Keep in mind, this is a hundred years before Richard III and Henry VII fought for the throne of England on the battlefield. So this is very much right. a time when nobles and kings and princes were all also warriors, and that would include Pierre yes. as well. So 30 years before the duel in uh, 1356 uh, was the Battle of uh, Portier. Uh, Portier. Portier, Portier, Portier. I'm keeping an R in there. Portier, I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> anyway, so King King John of France was captured and mm-hmm. taken to England and held by the English for for four years. It was uh, wasn't he captured by the Black Prince? Is that the same? Oh, he might have. He, uh, he might have even been captured by the Black Prince. Yeah, it, you're right. It, 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 it would kind of time out with with all that for sure. And so, in in four years later, they negotiated his exchange. But part of the agreement, if they're going to release the king, the English wanted eighty three hostages in exchange so yes we'll send king john back to france but we're getting more hostages including one of the king's sons and his first cousin count pierre who remained in english custody for a for a decade so basically from the time he was 20 to 30 years old he was captive by of the english and as part of this uh treaty although if his captivity was anything like the king's it wasn't like he was thrown in a dungeon king john had been allowed to basically just do whatever he wanted 
he could still go hunting. He was still sending, you know, word back to France about things he wanted done. So he was still kind of running the country in abstentia, just always under English guard and under in English custody. And this is this is King John the Second, right? Yes, yes. Whose first cousins with Pierre? Who, we, yeah, who we don't see in the film, but we, we had yeah, talked yeah, yeah. About, right? Because we had talked about King John the First, who was the one? He was the baby who was only alive for like a few days. Oh, like, that was John the First. King John the Posthumous now. Oh, that's John the First. So I wonder at the time if they 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 probably didn't call him second at the time. Then this probably would have just been King John at the time. Uh, it looks like at the time he was called King John the Good. Oh, even during his lifetime. Okay, um, but yes. The- uh, well, I actually I'm not sure if that was during his lifetime, but yeah. So John the First was uh they actually might have called him John the First. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, because it, it was John the First wasn't actually called John the First until like much later when historians figured out like, oh actually the line of succession would have passed right through. Like this the twentieth century, right? Yeah, like that it was thinking it was that yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and as far as uh, a personality goes, again, you know, obviously we don't know enough about uh, I don't know much about Count Pierre, but he did have at least one historically recognized bastard, so infidelity as we kind of see in the movie was uh, at least partially uh, documented of course also super common at the time so the kind of debauchery we see him and Legree up to I mean it's invented for the film or it's probably in the book but at the same time these kinds of things did happen and so then uh, Pierre died in 1404 and then uh, 10 years later I thought in this little thing but his one of his sons actually it might have even been his youngest son went from Count of Alençon to Duke so Pierre's son became the first duke mm. uh, of Alençon, and then his son, that son, actually incidentally died at the Battle of Agincourt. Oh, really? Yeah, and then uh, and then today, uh, Alençon is a city in Normandy. All this takes place in Normandy, except when we go to Paris. And uh, Alençon today has about twenty five thousand people. So just a city in France today, where Pierre, played by Ben Affleck, used to control. So is it is it safe to say that since this this whole movie and everything, it takes place in Normandy? That uh, all of these people are probably distant descendants of like Rolo. I mean, yeah, potentially, and and that actually ties into when we get when you get to Carouge here, and I'm gonna go ahead and say this uh-huh. part now with with Carouge, although I want you to kind of get to Legree here first, but yeah, his father-in-law, they talk about being a traitor because he sided with the English, right? Well, yeah. yeah, because Normandy in general was super tied to England from William the Conqueror and all those yeah. things. So a lot of the, a lot of Normans in general did feel more loyal to England than they felt to France. So yes, it was yeah. a thing. Yes, his father-in-law in real life did side with the English and was lucky to keep his lands and everything after that. But it was right. super common because, I mean, they were in Normandy, and Normandy was kind of a yeah. lot of the times on the English side, or controlled by England, yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, tell us about Legree. Yeah, so Legree, he was born in 1330 in Normandy. Like we see in the movie, he, which, again, this is something where it, you know, it says it in his like in his Wikipedia, it's like historically known, like, oh, he held minor office in the church, and that is what allowed him to be educated. That's why he could read and write in multiple languages, like they say in the movie, and that is actually, that's true. Hmm. And early in his life, he was was educated to read and write because that's what he thought that he was going to do, was a, a career in the church before he became the favorite of Count Pierre. He fought in Normandy during the Hundred Years' War in a bunch of different battles, just like we see in the movie. He mentions that he was 
the godfather to Karuja's son who died young. Um, and that is also historically accurate, which I, I guess, well, today that's also a big deal. But like at the time it was, that's like a huge, a huge deal right. like for, you know, a friendship like that. It wasn't a token thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. That goes to show how close these two dudes were previously before all this went down that Carouge asked Legree to be the godfather of his son. Like that's a massive, massive responsibility. And it shows a, you know, a deep friendship and a deep trust between the two. Of right. Them. It basically basically means we are we are brothers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The uh, accusation that we see in the movie is I mean, it's pulled out of the book, so it's pretty much exactly what the accusation was in real life. Although in the movie, and I don't know if this is an inconsistency or if I just missed something where they portrayed it differently later, but when you first see Marguerite tell Carouge that she was raped, she says, oh, Legree came with another guy and they both held me down. She just say that in the film? Yeah, but then when you see the event take place, both times it's portrayed, it's only Legree that's in the room. But in real life, it she did say, is Adam, is it Louvel? I'm not sure how to pronounce that French. Yeah, yeah, Lavelle, yeah. Lavelle, that he was actually, like, in the room and helping hold her down while Legree raped her. Right. So I'm not sure why they, when they actually portrayed it, why he is, like, because both times it's like explicitly shown that he Legree's runs off. Like, Get yeah. out of here! You know she she wants to be left alone or whatever, and he runs off both times. So I'm I don't know. A couple of interesting things that were not in the movie again, at, at least not that I remember, because uh, <laughs> I did see it two days ago. But uh, Legree was actually knighted before their duel. Uh, yes, so it was yes. like uh, I read that as well. It was a ceremonial thing. To where if a, if you were going to duel, if you're going to be in a duel to the death with a knight, you would be knighted so that you were both on equal footing in society. Yes. Because also, since the trial by combat is basically like God is going to decide by deciding who wins this battle, which one of you is telling the truth. Well, God obviously holds a knight in higher regard than a squire. <laughs> so you have to be a knight too, so that God can't show favoritism to the knight over the squire. Only to the truth. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that's why that's why he is technically Sir Jacques Legree, because he was knighted right before the duel. Right. And I, and, I, and I guess we should say, we have, we have not yet spoiled the movie. Everything we've said up to this point could just be what you get from the trailer, like the rape accusation and everything is in the trailer. Yeah. But uh, we will get into who actually wins the duel, which I actually, so I, I was going to do a lot of research before the film, but I kind of stopped myself. I was like, wait, no, this research and reading Wikipedia stuff is going to spoil the movie. So I stopped myself. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, going into yeah. the duel itself, I did not know who was going to win. I didn't either. Okay. And I made sure to do all of my research after I watched the okay. movie and also to not even look at the Wikipedia pages because I was like, it well, say what year I they see, died. Yeah, yeah. If I see what year they died and then like one of them is way later than the other one, <laughs> then I know. Yeah, that's true. So, so yes, spoiler spoiler, spoiler alerts to, to the rest of the film here. We are going to talk about kind of everything that happens in it. Yeah. Yes. And also, spoiler alert. When you're on, if you're if you're looking at this stuff on Wikipedia or any other historical sources, 
don't look at the death dates, obviously, of Jacques Legree and uh, Jean de Carouge, because those are the two guys in the duel. But also, don't look at the death date for Marguerite either, because in the movie, they make it clear that if Carouge loses the duel, that that would prove not only was he lying, but his wife was too. And so for lying before God, they would burn her at the stake. So don't look at any of their death dates yes, yes. before you watch the movie. And uh, and just so I don't forget, that was one of the ones that kind of stuck in my craw. That you look at the Wikipedia page and it cites the book's author as the source for she would have been burned at the stake, and that she knew that was it, uh, that was what was on the line. But I, again, I found another article. I don't forget if it was Slate or the New York Post. I was I was looking up several different articles talking about this, and they basically said. While on paper, they would threaten people with that, that if you lie, that's, you know, perjury before God, uh-huh. and we're going to burn you at the stake. But there, that same article said, there's no known instances of that actually happening, and it was a hollow threat. And so... Oh, okay. So I guess I, I'm i a little skeptical of using the, the book as this really, really trustworthy historical document even though I do believe it was well-researched and he got a lot right. I just feel like there's certain leaps like that that he was kind of adding tension where... Anyway, like medieval justice at the time, they oversimplified in the movie, which, yes, makes sense. And a lot of times they would talk tough, but at the end of the day, real life is always more complicated. There would be compromises. They would settle out of court and all kinds of things like this. Well, maybe it's a hollow threat for them to burn someone at the stake for perjury, but like... They definitely burned people at the stake. Well, true, because Joan of Arc was 50 years after this. Yeah, so you're you're not wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong. I guess for, for perjury specifically, though, that's, yeah, maybe not as uh, as serious of a thing where they would actually yes. set people she, on fire. She, yeah, she, she could have served prison time or had to pay significant fines. Like she would have been punished for lying. But yeah. I don't think, it, so if in real life, if her husband had, yes, spoiler alert, I guess we'll go ahead and peel the bandit off. Her husband wins the duel. But uh, if her husband had lost the duel in real life, I do not think she burns. I I don't think that's what would have happened. She would have been proven a liar. She might have been in prison. She might have been stripped of all titles and property. And it would have been bad. I don't think they burn her. And even at the trial, she was not in shackles like they show at the movie waiting the outcome. She was watching, but she wasn't in custody in that same way. Right. A lot of that's just kind of drama for the movie. One thing about the trial that I saw that I thought was interesting was, so in the movie, the only person that we see actually being questioned is Marguerite, but everyone had to give testimony. She did, Legree and Carouge did, but also so did all of the servants that worked in the house, even though they weren't around, and so did Adam Lavelle, because he was accused of being there and being complicit. Right. But I thought that it was interesting that because Lavelle and the servants were not noble, they were actually subjected to torture mm-hmm. during their questioning because they could, because it was allowed. Right. And they would, you know, they would think that that was more reliable than just asking someone questions. But Carouge, Legree, and Marguerite, none of them were, were tortured because they were obviously, they were all noble, so you couldn't do that. Well, and then specifically, I mean, under torture, Lavelle said Legree did nothing wrong. And the one servant who was there, because that's the other thing, too. So in the, in the film, no servants are around. I, the records were kind of, I, I was saying, was like, no, there was a servant. And like one of Marguerite's servants who under torture said Legree did nothing wrong. So it, it's really, really tough because this whole film, and again, overall, I mean, I think it's a pretty solid movie. It's not great, but it's it's pretty solid. And, and you, you see a lot of headlines 
calling it a Ridley Scott's Me Too film. And with our 21st century lens, it's very, very easy to see why would she make this up? This is ridiculous. Of course, this must have happened. And the way we kind of see it in the film, it seems a very realistic depiction. You kind of get that like, yeah, this is how women were treated at the time. Rape was often just not reported, even more, well, I don't know about even more, it was equally not reported and not dealt with if it was. But at the same time, it's possible her husband, who is kind of this jealous, petty bastard, might have forced her to make it up to get even with his old friend who he hated now. That's possible. That's absolutely possible. And the fact that these these witnesses yeah. under torture said they agreed to nothing wrong. Well, I'm like, eh, it's kind of a coin toss. It does seem like most historians say it's a toss up and we can never know and we will never know. Right. Because right. it's just, you know, it's one story versus another story. There are historians who who do fall on either side so there are historians who say Legree is like most likely innocent and then there's also historians who say no Legree probably did commit this rape right right but uh i i think most historians are kind of torn like well it's it's kind of a it's a toss-up and we can't ever know just because like the evidence is so it's based so heavily on just personal testimony and you can't tell who's lying and who's not that it's just, it's not ever going to be resolved. And I think that's the only responsible stance to have. I guess I don't see how you could yeah. confidently believe one way or the other. And if, well, go ahead. the author of the book thinks that Legree did it. Yeah. Yeah. He said he wouldn't even wrote the book if he wasn't confident Right. He said he believed Marguerite from the beginning. But again, if that's if that's kind of your approach, that's what inspires you to write the book. I mean, then power to you. But I don't know if that's necessarily responsible history. And the fact that I mean, shoot, the whole fact that it was allowed to go to trial by combat to the death was because ultimately the judges and everybody thought, yep, it's unknowable. Let God decide. And this was not a common practice. Right. This was a big, big deal at the time. There had not been a oh, yeah. case like this for 30 years in France, and they call it the last duel. Basically, it's kind of a little bit of an asterisk. It was the last legally sanctioned duel specifically by the Parliament of Paris. So, yes, little, little, several asterisks, but um, it was a huge deal at the time. Oh, yeah, because people were like dueling with pistols and stuff or just or just, you know, dueling with swords in like, you know, back alley or like off we're just gonna kind of settle this like men like that stuff went on for hundreds of years afterwards oh right you know aaron burr and alexander hamilton was 400 years later yeah 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 this was an actual trial by combat sanctioned by the church and by the king right where basically the result was legally binding and all those kinds of things yes but it it was it was exceedingly rare and even when there were legally sanctioned duels for causes like this a lot of times it was only ceremonial and like they would exchange a couple like, you know, blows and then immediately settle out of court kind of thing. So like it was, yeah, you dress up and maybe start the duel just for like uh, honor's sake or propriety's sake. But then they, you weren't never actually going to go through with it. So like one that rarely happened. And if it did, it was never to the death. But this this did happen, though. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like um, when you hear of like, uh, you know, 18th century pistol duels where they'll, you know, challenge each other to a duel for their honor. Yeah. But then we just both point our guns in the air and pull the trigger and then shake hands and say, all right, it, you know, the beef is squashed because we both showed up and we both, you know. Right. Honor was settled. 
Yeah. We both felt strong enough we were going to stand there and willing to take a bullet, but then we both respect each other enough that we're just going to end it by firing into the air. Yeah. So yeah, there's those kinds of right. things are ha- happening uh, for a long time. Yes. Any more on Legree before I get into uh, Carouge? Um, no, no. That's that was that was everything that. Happened. Oh right, because there there is no. Well, what did he do after? It's like, well, no, he died. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he died. Oh, um, I I, I was gonna say that in the uh movie too, they show him being you know stripped of all his armor and dragged through the streets, and they hang him up next to all the other dead bodies just to rot. That all happened too, and he was thrown into just a common grave. You know. Not something that you would typically see done to the body of a knight. Right. But again, the idea was they did believe that God had judged him. And so yes. whatever they thought about him before, even his friends would be like, oh, shoot, guess he did it. Like, it was that stern a judgment, I guess. Yeah. And then the flip side for, for Carouge. So, yeah. So, the uh, again, we've kind of talked about most of the film. The film is just basically this whole story of their friendship between Legree and Carouge and they have a falling out when Legree becomes the favorite of Count Pierre and Carouge feels very very jealous and years of this and he feels like he's always getting screwed over and then he brings lawsuits to get some land he was promised and it just makes Pierre hate him even more and Legree can't defend him anymore and then ultimately uh again falling out they try they have a at least seeming reconciliation and he introduces his wife marguerite to legree and legree is very enamored with her and when carouge and his mother and all the servants are away from their castle legree rapes her and we see that version of events from everyone's point of view first from carouge then from legree then from marguerite so the timeline of the film is is a little off again overall this film's at least compared to the book, you know, the accuracy. Basically, the accuracy of the book is more in question than the accuracy of the movie, if that makes sense. Right, because it, according to the book, the movie is completely historically accurate. Right, because right. all of the events are pretty much exactly what happens in the book. Right, but I, I do have yeah a little few questions with the book, but there are, there are a few things with the timeline a little off here though too. So their friendship had actually broken down before Carouge's first wife and son had died. So. They were friends. He was the godfather of Cruz's son with his first wife. But the whole him becoming Count Pierre's favorite and all the land stuff and the the friendship completely falling apart, that all happened. Then Cruz's wife and son died. So they kind of just left that part of the movie and kind of made it happen in in the distant past. Mm -hmm. I mentioned how Pierre got his land and that Cruz did marry the daughter of a former traitor. Uh, but again, it, I don't think he was necessarily seen as vile. I don't know. It's tough to say how he was, how he was seen. I mean, just like today, you know, everyone had their own political things. and Right. Yeah. Anyway, very common in Normandy to side with English, though. But yeah, the lawsuit that we see in the film over land that was supposed to be part of his dowry, that all seems accurate. Although I wouldn't say, I, don't, I didn't see evidence yeah. that it was necessarily a forced coercion to pay debt. But he did sell the land to uh, Count Pierre. And it looks like kind of everyone did kind of see Carouge as being in the wrong for complaining about it. Yeah, that's that's something that I noticed too, and I kind of thought that as I was watching the movie, which I guess you, you when you see it from Legree's point of view, I think it actually makes more sense that way, where Pierre is giving that land to Legree 
because it's good land and he's appreciative of what Legree's doing for him and it's his land to give and so he gives it to him right and then Carouge is like oh you're you guys are out to get me you're just doing this you know to get back at me and Pierre is in the Legree section Pierre is like I don't ever consider you know your feelings or you know your opinion when I'm doing stuff right he doesn't say this but it's, it's kind of the the gist of it like I, I don't even, like, know who you are. Like, it, it doesn't matter what you think. Like, this is this is mine to give. It, it was never <laughs> yours to begin with. But Carouge just thinks that it's, like, that they're all out to get him and they're, you know, plotting against him. And it's, like, this concerted effort to make him as miserable as possible. When, in reality, it was probably just, like, they just didn't care what he thought. And it wasn't his land anyway. And he gave it to Legree as a nice thing to do for Legree versus a bad thing to do to Carouge. Right. And then because he brings this lawsuit, then when Carouge's father dies, Pierre further gives Carouge's father's position to Legree. Now that is a little different. So it was taken from him, but it was just, it wasn't given to Legree. So Legree got the land he wanted, mm-hmm. but he didn't also give his father's position to Legree. That just went to another uh, supporter of Pierre's. And then there was actually a third issue that the film left out, probably just because there was getting to be, you know, there's, it's already pretty full of uh, content here, especially when doing basically the same story three different times. There's a lot of, I mean, repeated scenes, yeah. scenes. I mean, you're literally seeing scenes of the movie three times, two, two or three times. So Carouge bought some land, but all sales had to be approved by Count Pierre. And because it was Carouge, Pierre's like, oh, yeah, you, you can't buy that land. In fact, it's my land now. <laughs> So he basically he refund he made he did make sure Cruz got refunded but like oh that land you want to buy oh I yeah. just I, nope I just bought it now it's mine <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah he was definitely kind of uh, petty as as well there but yes then we get to the reconciliation uh, the kiss was documented again at least in the book I don't know what you know if that would have been in a source of his I'd be very curious to see these original sources yeah and then and then the knighting thing yeah Cruz does go to a failed campaign in Scotland where he was knighted. Which was a big deal, and again, he acts like it's a big deal in the in the film, but everyone else seems to kind of blow it off. But it really did like go a long way to increase his social standing. It was a bigger deal to be a knight. Well, and that campaign in Scotland that's part of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, we talked about in the we were talking about Isabella of France that Scotland got its independence from England, and then during the Hundred Years' War, they invaded. England. Oh, right. Like as a part of a deal with the French. Okay, yes, yes. That they were an independent country joining with the, making an alliance with the French. That's correct. Right, right. They weren't part of England rebelling or anything. They were a separate country at that time. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. And then, so as accurate as the movie is, I I guess, so in the trial, Carouge throws down his glove as to say, like, I'm ready to fight. And I'm like, right. Why a glove? Dude, throw down your gauntlet. Like, (laughs) the whole idea is he should have. And even even historically, I thought it said maybe it was just from the book too. But it said like he threw down a gauntlet. It says it's so much cooler to throw down an actual gauntlet than your glove because that's the whole phrase. I thought the glove. I thought a glove is a gauntlet. Is that what, okay? I, is that where I'm wrong? I thought the gauntlet was only when it was metal, like your metal like oh. piece of armor gauntlet. Is a glove also a gauntlet? I thought a regular glove could be a gauntlet. Uh, okay, maybe I just know what a gauntlet is. I thought a glove. So maybe it's both. Well, now it's, now I have to look it up. Yeah, let's, I don't... let's look let's look that up. I guess that's worth noting because I I always saw a gauntlet as the piece of armor. But I wonder if a big long glove is also a gauntlet. If not, that's a big mistake of the film. I mean, you got to do the actual gauntlet so you can throw down the gauntlet. <laughs> okay, so on the Wikipedia page for gauntlet, 
it says gauntlet, and then in parentheses just says glove. Oh. And it says a gauntlet is a variety of glove, particularly one having been constructed of hardened leather or metal plates. So it's okay. It's unclear though. No, I think that I think I think it's both. It's both then. So it's not just any glove. It's a big, thick leather glove or a metal oh, glove. Okay. Okay. So they did. Th- so it was a gauntlet in the in the film. Then I just felt like, I would just yeah. thought that was a big glove. <laughs> the big leather gloves that they use for falconry are also called gauntlets. So I guess it can just okay. be any kind of glove. Well, but I think it needs to be almost like down to your forearm, though. Well, it was. It was like a long glove. Right. But I'm saying any glove would not be a gauntlet. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. long leather gloves are. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, my my bad last duel. You got it right. <laughs> um, Minor little clarification. I guess, I guess this, goes, this kind of makes sense in the film, but just like clarification. There was a trial, and we see that in the film. They give testimony like you were saying and all that, but the verdict of the trial was to honor Caruja's request for a trial by combat. Yeah. There was an initial trial, too, that was just... It wasn't a trial by the king. It was um, Count Pierre just ruled. Oh, right. Basically, oh, that, you know, Legree is not in the wrong. Which, There's nothing here. It, yeah. Which in the movie, they made it seem like, oh, he just kind of decided that. But in real life, he actually was like, no, let's have a trial. But none, like Carouge, Marguerite, no one from the Carouge mm. side actually showed up because they said, well, we're not going to show up at this trial because it's a sham. Gotcha. You're just going to side with Legree anyway. Gotcha. And so he's like, um, all right, well, I have this trial, and no one else other than Legree showed up, so I guess that means he's acquitted. So yes, uh, Cruz does uh, win the duel, exonerating his wife, and why well, I say exonerating his wife, proving proving Legree's guilt, because obviously they were definitely talking about the idea that Marguerite might have been uh, lying, and he died. I think that the credit things afterwards say he died a few years later. It was 10 years later um, when he was fighting against the yeah. Ottoman Turks. I think again. I think they mentioned all that, but that was the the thirteen ninety six Battle of Nikopol, or however you pronounce that. And it, in the movie, it specifically says he died during the Crusades. Is that was that battle part of the Crusades? Uh, I thought the Crusades were over by then. Uh, let's see. But then I, I'm nah, not really sure. They, I mean, Maybe my timeline is just yeah. No, that, I mean that's this this is this is definitely the later side of it because you you are you know a couple hundred years after Richard Lionheart and all that, but like mm-hmm. in say Seventh Seal. They do talk about the character there having just returned from the Crusades, and that was in the 1350s. So I mean, it's okay. There, there. Yeah, you're you're definitely on the downside of the Crusades now. I and I and I didn't look specifically if that Battle of Nicopole was considered part of the Crusades or not. But if a guy from France is going to fight the Ottoman Turks, you know, there's a good chance it was Crusade adjacent. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. And then I the articles I said we don't really know what happened to Marguerite and that. So all the stuff about her dying about 30 years later and never remarrying, I think that's just from the book, and I don't know where he got that. Mm-hmm. It does look like they had three, that she had three kids with Carouge, and their eldest son's parentage was questioned. Like, I mean, you couldn't do the DNA test back then to prove it, so I don't think they ever really knew for sure if it was Legree's kid or Carouge's kid. Not that they're historically mentioned. I mean, the only reason that... Rouge has such an extensive Wikipedia page is specifically because this book was written about this incident, and otherwise there wouldn't be. Yeah, same, same with Legree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the one other thing that I read an article talking about that they got wrong. So 
In general, rape was taken very seriously in the Middle Ages, but of course it was hard for women to ever receive justice. Uh, They kind of talk about in the film, they kind of use her pregnancy against her, saying that you can only conceive if you orgasm, you can only orgasm if you enjoyed it, so even Mm. if you were raped, you must have enjoyed it. All that is kind of in keeping with things at the time, but the article I was reading kind of lambasted them from that point on, saying, but they would have never have been talking about this in court. Like... It just would not have happened. They would not have asked her if she enjoys sex with her husband. They basically, this article was like just saying that is absolutely, oh, really? absolutely not something that would have. Because they said, if anything, it went the other way, and that the assumption at the time was that women always enjoyed sex and could couldn't get enough of it, and of course they probably enjoyed rape, and that's why the men need to keep a better eye on their women. Huh. So that basically just said that that line of questioning was completely inaccurate. Now again, that's based on. I guess it's basically a historian versus historian as far as that goes that he has it in the book. But this article I was reading said like, yeah, that was not not a thing at all. Well, when they were talking about that during the trial, it immediately made me think of Todd Aiken. He was the uh, U.S. representative from Missouri. Oh, yes. The women's body has a way of shutting that down. Yeah. Yeah. He was quoted as. So the the exact quote, I actually found it and put okay. it in my notes because I was like, this sounds, I mean, it's like, it's like pretty close. It says, first of all, from what I, under, and this is a quote, by the way, first of all, from what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. If it's a legitimate rape, the female body has a way to shut that whole thing down. So even as recent as 2012, yeah. uh, there were members of Congress in the United States who thought that 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 was a thing yes yeah oh well it's like actually pretty rare to get pregnant from rape which is not true <laughs> yeah using his old 14th century logic ugh and here's one other side thing about the time period this is not really related to the movie at all i don't think they got this stuff necessarily wrong but when i was doing some research on again queen margaret the first of denmark i actually was getting confused on some of the buildings i was looking into that they were red brick and i was like wait what that red brick building can't be from the 14th century and basically every movie we grew up seeing from the medieval period you don't see red brick anywhere right now last duel i think it's probably accurate paris still doesn't have a lot of red brick buildings it's all pretty accurate so i was kind of just doing the research and despite what we do see in movies red brick was getting really really common at this time period, but just kind of more farther north. So it was more kind of a Danish Scandinavian Mm -hmm. thing. And you would have seen some red brick castles uh, and churches and stuff in Northern France in the 14th century. So just kind of a, as far as the aesthetic of the film, again, I think the castles we see in the film are probably correct that this is kind of the stone you would have seen, but red brick was contemporary. And I guess I never got that feel from movies like this that i'd seen growing up that you think of red brick is getting more into the renaissance but yeah you do have they even call it brick gothic and you see you'll see gothic churches that same kind of gothic style like a notre dame but starting in like the 12th and 13th centuries they would be made out of red brick sometimes especially up farther north where they didn't huh. have access to the stone so again not necessarily relevant to the movie but something I was making a point to look up because I was just kind of confused that, oh, wait, these castles in the 1300s were made with red brick? But not a lot in France and Paris, just kind of farther north. But yeah, just kind of a side note. I, I did want to talk about um, some stuff on the, the actual movie itself. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so other than you know, this is the uh, the film side of our history and film, 
I have a few notes here of stuff that I liked and then some stuff that I didn't like. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll be curious to see where those Venn diagrams overlap with yours. <laughs> so okay. uh, one of the one of the minor things, I thought that the sound design was really cool, specifically during the the scenes with like the the horses and the fighting and stuff. They use a lot of really like heavy sounds. Sometimes when you get like sword fighting or armor clinking, it can sound kind of tinny. Mm. But in these battle scenes, and I'm thinking specifically of like the one that we see. When they cross the, the river, very beginning of the movie, yeah. When they're crossing the river, and then during obviously the duel itself, but then also during the battle that he's fighting in Scotland with all of the flaming arrows that are like zooming by and like hitting off his armor, which I thought that was actually really cool. The arrows that would like clink off his armor and they were flaming arrows, so like the sparks would go everywhere. I thought that was actually pretty sick. But they there just seemed to be a lot more bass in those. Even like the whizzing arrows had a lot deeper like heavier sound to them although i will put an asterisk on that i haven't been watching a lot of movies in theaters lately (laughs) because of you know the global pandemic so maybe it's just because i'm not as used to like theater quality sound but i i just really appreciated the sound design i also appreciated adam driver's performance i thought he did a really good job at playing a fucking creep he did a good job of Playing a guy raping someone who doesn't think he's raping someone. Oh, uh, yeah. Because even even his version of his events, it's like, oh, wait, so even he thinks he raped her? Oh, wait, no, he thinks... Yes! He thinks that's exactly. just her. She's, she's a woman. She did her part of playing the playing uh, coy or whatever. Like, yeah. Yes, because when they're showing it, I'm like, wait a minute. This is the story from his point of view. Yeah. From his point of view, he also committed rape. And then it's like, when you hear him talk about it, it's like, oh, no, he has the same point of view that she does. He just doesn't think that it's rape. Right. He thinks he well, thinks she, that that was OK. She's a lady. She has to pretend to fight. And then we have sex. Yeah. It's well, like- <laughs> and even uh, we see during the little party that he has with uh, Count Pierre, he like picks up that girl and right. she's like yelling no and kicking and screaming. And it's like, yeah, that's rape, too. Right. That also counts as rape. Right, right. But he just saw that as the, 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 they were just partying. Yeah. And then finally, my actually my, my favorite part of this movie uh, was Ben Affleck's performance. Oh, really? And I think it's just because, I, so I didn't, you, you don't really see him in the preview very, in, in True. the trailers. True, he's a much bigger part than you'd expect, yeah. Right, so they just kind of show his face, but you don't really get anything from him. So I wasn't really expecting very much from Ben Affleck. And part of it is the uh, the hair and makeup. They kind of make him look like not Ben Affleck. I actually, I went to go see this movie with my wife, and it was like maybe the fourth or fifth time that you see him in the movie, she leans over. She's like, that, that's Ben Affleck. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I didn't, I had no idea. Didn't even recognize him. But his his performance was really good. I really liked the he kind of is more of a chameleon than any of these other any of the other characters. Oh, you, like, you felt he disappeared more than Driver and Damon. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 for sure. And I I'm not sure if that was just a I had low expectations, and then he you know delivered a pretty good performance, and so I thought it was like really good. But I liked it. As far as stuff that I didn't like, um, and I I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a of an activity with you. Okay. Uh. <laughs> So there is 
there was one thing, there was one part of this movie that I thought was like by far the worst part of the movie and brought the movie down almost kind of like an anchor where had it been changed, it would have been a lot better. And I wanted to do a little like one, two, three, say what you think the worst part of the movie is. Oh. On the count of three. Uh, okay. Uh, that's probably, that's kind of a, that's kind of a broad category. Like you do you mean like a specific incident, a specific performance, or just like, you know, like the, the fake baby in American Sniper, like. Uh, so similar, similar to the fake baby in American Sniper, but this is a much bigger part of the movie. If it's, and if it's, if it didn't stand out to you as much as it did to me, then it's probably, you're just not going to say the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Nothing, nothing comes, comes to mind. I guess the, the one thing that comes to mind is maybe when Matt, I guess, forget the one, two, three thing, just cause I don't think I'm going to be right with what you're thinking. But when, yeah, when, when Matt, fine. when Matt Damon kind of says, uh, why does he always have to do this stuff to me? I mean, just how, how kind of petty Matt Damon is at times when it's her version of the story and we realize how selfish he really is. But, uh, and then his acting performance isn't that great at that point. But other than that, and that's... Yeah, uh, well, so specifically his accent, but his, Matt Damon's performance overall I thought was not very good. But his accent is horrible. Well, he doesn't even do one. What do you mean? It's horrible. Be- that's... Well, he... There are some lines where it sounds like he's trying to. And it's like... I just wish that he would have either just been Matt Damon or like go for an accent. But it's like he keeps switching back and forth from like scene to scene. And even sometimes like lines within the same scene. But he'll be like, okay, is he trying to sound French there? Or it sounds like he might be trying to sound British. But then there's other scenes where it's like, okay, he's just talking. He's just Matt Damon now. Um, I didn't notice that too much. I mean, I, I would argue his performance wasn't wasn't the greatest, although I'm a big Matt Damon fan. But yeah, he, he was. I thought it was the worst performance. Okay. In the entire movie. Okay. <laughs> and I, I don't disagree, I guess, with that. Yeah. yeah. It's tough because I, I, I've. The reason I kind of did the Ben and Matt people was I've I've kind of been that you know lifelong Ben and Matt fan going back to Google Hunting and and of course people will talk about oh they haven't even been in a movie together it's like oh no they've been in all the Kevin Smith movies together in the in the in between time and uh, <laughs> and then you you talk about being I, I think I think Affleck gets a lot of crap for some choices he maybe made you know twenty years ago and Kevin Smith would always talk about how. Oh, I mean, I think Ben Affleck can do anything. I, even the shark, even the shark and Jaws, like he just, he just, you know, Ben can do it all. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's almost like maybe a little bit miscast of Damon. He just didn't. You're right. He and you also get the Scott stuff too. So language. I mean, the better version of this movie is in frickin' French with subtitles. True. And and I get that you kind of do the proxy thing, and we do get the one guy singing the song in France in French. Mm-hmm. And really, Scott does the same thing with Gladiator, where it's like, no matter where they go, they're speaking English. And I get that, okay, where you can say English is a proxy for Latin, but then we're going to North Africa, why the heck are they all still speaking English slash Latin? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so Scott just kind of ignores languages in general, and, and you, you end up with these kind of, not just period pieces, but period pieces set in a different location. The language thing is tricky, the accent thing is tricky. When you were talking about Damon, it made me think of... The crap that Coster got for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he's just kind of this rotating yes. accent. Where is he? Is, yeah, not that bad. Okay. I mean, I'm not okay. being that hyperbolic. Where I'm saying that it's it's on that same level of horrible, <laughs> but it was still pretty bad. Especially because, and again, this might just be an expectations thing, but like seeing Matt Damon in Invictus do a South African accent really well, actually really hard True. for Americans to do, and he killed it. Right, and it's like if. Adam Driver and Ben Affleck are going to put on fake British accents. And obviously the girl is, she's British. So she's going to speak that way anyway. Like, just do a British accent then. 
Of course, of course, I'm like, you're playing French people. Why are you doing British accents? Just other than to sound vaguely well, European. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. I know, but like, it's just, it just seemed like it was, there were a couple choices. Like, he could have done a French accent, which, you know, whatever. That might have actually been more offensive. Yeah, I know, it's tough, it's <laughs> but, tough. Uh, if he would have just done a British accent, and just so he just sounded like everybody else, but it's like everyone else is doing British accents, and then he just sounds like Matt Damon. And I swear, I swear there was one line that he gave during the trial where he is saying the word combat and he sounds like he says it with a Boston accent. I swear (laughs) to God I heard it. I have to wait for it to come out on streaming or something so I can go find that part and play it again, but I swear I heard him say combat (laughs) from Boston. And I was like, oh no, Matt Damon, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. I think, honestly, I mean, the correct answer is to avoid the star power thing and cast French actors, even if you're going to do it in English, if you have French actors with French accents speaking English, it would mm. just feel more authentic. Like Game of Thrones, going yeah. again, Westeros, <laughs> why do they have British accents in Westeros? Because medieval stuff sounds cooler in British accents. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's well, interesting. Well, in Game of Thrones, they actually do, like, you know, the Starks, they sound like, like their accent they sound like they're from like the northern part of England, like up towards Scotland. Like right, that's the accent right. they use. Like Kit Harrington doesn't talk like that in real life. Mm. And then you know the Lannisters sound more like RP, like uh, you know hoity toity British accents. Hmm. It's so new. The scores are still going to settle here, but currently the uh, last duel is an eighty six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, seventy nine percent audience score. So actually, the critics like it a little more currently. Which uh, kind of surprised me for a movie like this. I think this would be more of a like a popcorn uh, movie that the audiences would like more more the critics. I, I don't know. So this is this is going to make me sound a little bit cynical, um, and I I promise I'm I'm really not. But well, so scores are always inflated, like right when the movie comes out, right? Like are they they normally start off high and then slowly drop over time? Is that generally how it works? Generally speaking, so Last Duel actually was at a 69% critic score a couple weeks ago, and so it actually crept up, but I would imagine it might settle back down into the high 70s over the next month, yes. So I wonder if there are critics who are maybe looking past some of the flaws in performances or like technical flaws with the actual filmmaking and are giving it a higher score based on its portrayal of a, you know, hashtag me too message. Oh yes. Which is fine. Right. Like it's right. it's good it's don't get me wrong. It is good to have art that portrays issues like this, especially And it doesn't feel preachy. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And that's why it's good. And I'm thinking if maybe they are weighting that and so they rate it higher. Okay. Okay. That it's timely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if this was just a run of the mill medieval we're gonna clang swords together movie with those performances Maybe it is a sixty or seventy-ish percent okay. range. Okay. But because it is, it handles this issue so well, and like we said, the whole section for Marguerite's story is written by a woman. So it's a you know, it deals with issues of rape and sexual assault and uh, underreporting and the way that a male-dominated justice system deals with those issues. Like that's all really important and good stuff to talk about and to have big popular art made about yes so maybe that's why the score is a little bit higher. okay yeah o- overall i mean i my personal opinion i don't normally rate movies on imdb but it just kind of popped up like it popped up like to rate it and so like i'm like well i guess i've seen it so instead of exiting out i went ahead and i was like oh i'll rate it 
and I was hovering back and forth between six and seven uh, out of ten on IMDb. Mm-hmm. And I was I was like, well, I want to do six point five. So actually, I finally actually aired on the side of a six. I think this movie is okay. It is well made. You're right. Maybe some of the acting casting almost felt a little off. It's, it's honestly it's too American of a production for the setting. If this is a European production, whether it's British or French actors, I do think it just feels more authentic. So I just I was kind of constantly aware that, like I said, I'm watching Adam Driver and and Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, and so Comer stood out the most as Marguerite, just because I'm less familiar with mm-hmm. her, and like you said, she's probably British, so she gets the best performance. This isn't a film I think gets any Oscar buzz. I mean, maybe the technical yeah. stuff, like you're saying, it could get it could get a stray sound award. Maybe, maybe a Dark Horse Supporting Actor nomination for Comer, but I kind of doubt that as well. Yeah. It's it's just okay. Now, I honestly, I was worried it was going to be a straight-up bad film. It is not bad. It's not bad at all. It's just a movie. It's a movie. It's solid. Yeah. It's worth talking about. We definitely wanted to do this conversation because it is in theaters, and we haven't, we don't often get the chance to do uh, an episode on a film in theaters. But it's it's solid. I, so I was gonna say, watch it if if you're remotely interested. Yeah, go watch it. It's a it's it's a solid film. But it's uh yeah, it's uh far far from great, far from great. I don't regret seeing it. Like it was, it, you know, it's not like uh, I also didn't hate it. It was pretty good. Oh right, I did not dislike it at all. Right, I just didn't think it was anything special. Yeah, out of, out of ten, I think a six is a is a fair score. I'd probably give it the same. I I will say there were some people walking out of the theater when I was walking out that were bemoaning like, oh my God, I can't believe that I went to go see this today instead of the new James Bond that just came out, <laughs> which I didn't feel like that. Like I was like, oh, I, you know, that was, it was fine. I, I wasn't like, you know, sad that I bought a ticket to the wrong movie, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's fine. Go see it. If for no other reason than just to appreciate the uh, the historical stuff that's in it, yeah, no, it's a good looking movie because it is a really, really Scott movie. So yeah, it, it's uh, worth seeing. We'll we'll give it a very tepid thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so again, this is kind of coming out right in the middle of our our tournament. So this episode will come out right about the same time as our episode on a shock of the great versus Rami the second that will come out Tuesday the 19th. So I'm not sure if this will come out that same day or a few days after, but check out that episode as well. And thanks for listening and we'll catch you later. Mm-hmm.